Hello, my fans, friends. Welcome to the Rich Terring podcast feed, powered by ACAS Plus. Thanks to everyone who's come to see the Can I Have My Ball Back tour so far. It's been going really well. I've got a four-star review in The Standard, four-star review in The Telegraph, who once called me the worst comedy experience of the year, so that's a turnaround. Uh, people have been coming, people have really been enjoying it, and it's getting better and better. The only gigs this week are both in Pocklington, the town I was born in, near York. Uh, there's a couple of tickets left for the evening show and a few more tickets left for the matinee, I think about 4.30. But love to see you there, Yorkshire. Pop along, check richardherring.com slash ballback slash tour or richardherring.com slash gigs to see if I'm coming near to you. There are tickets left for nearly every show in the tour. I think Norwich has sold out. Uh, and a couple of gigs in London could do with your support as well. Anyway, please listen to the podcast. Do spread the news about the podcast to your friends. Listen as much as you can. Numbers are slightly down, which may affect the future of this podcast. So just leave it playing, even if you're not in the room. Love you. <laughs> now sit back, relax, and enjoy whatever it is you're going to listen to. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Leicester Square Theatre. Please welcome a man who wants to be stroked by Goldie the dog as he dies. It's Richard Herring. Thank you. Hello. How you doing? Oh, it's like a royal box at the start here with just two guys. There's only two guys right at the front. They booked the entire front row for themselves. I'll have to show uh, the people at the video, the video watchers at home. There's the two men. They've they planned a nice little evening out together. They thought it would be discreet. <laughs> then there's the, all these empty seats around. And those will fill up as the evening goes on. Possibly not. Uh, anyway, welcome to uh, sorry, Rich, welcome to Richard Herring's Leicester Square Theatre podcast, or as some of the cool people just recently have started calling it, Rahelester Burr. Oh, you're very good. Uh, it's uh, this is uh, well, this is the last uh, re- recording day. Oh, and that's given away that we don't. When I say you're much better than last week's audience, next week, 
That's going to wreck it. Uh, so anyway, yes, it's the end of the series coming up. So we've got two podcasts uh, for the audience here today, uh, who are much better than last week's audience. Uh, yeah, they are. <laughs> Some of them are the same. Uh, and uh, for people who've been watching on video or are literally here and can see me, uh, during the course of this uh, run, uh, I have dropped from 90.4 kilograms. Uh, today I'm 87.7 kilograms. So hopefully you can sort of see that as you watch. If you watch Meaning of Life, my other show, Rich Chain's Meaning of Life, I was about 96 kilos at the start of that, and that's going on for another two months. So hopefully, you know, it'll be, if you watch it backwards, it'll be like, I'm, no, that's just foolish. Uh, it's just foolish. I'm very, very tired, uh, which I think will be all right in this first podcast. But when Nick Helm comes on, I'll probably just fall asleep. Uh, so, because I've been uh, touring, I've, I was in Hull on Saturday, I was in Cardiff yesterday. You, you like Hull? You were in Hull and Sofia. You come down specially from Hull. How how was the how was the how was the gig in Hull? Oh, you want to you want to you want to see you want to see Peter Hook? Were you in Hull on Saturday? You were in Hull and you went to see Peter Hook. I was in Hull. Fucker. What's 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 your name? Murray. Uh, Murray, as in mince. Not me. Uh, he's going to be trouble, this guy. I should never have... Never. I'll give you one more try. What do you do for a living? You have a shop. That's nice. What do you... What do you... Uh, what do you sell in the shop? Men's stuff. Do you know anything about this? Is this where you met each other in this shop? <laughs> Men's stuff, that's good. Oh dear, they're going to be trouble. I'm not even. I'm, it's, it's, it's too good. There's some lovely ladies over here. I'll talk to you two instead. Hello, what's, what are your names? Catherine and Alice. It's very nice. How, what, what, is this the first time you've been to see this uh, live? No, you've been on a few times, haven't you? You still come back. Never picked on you though before, have I? No. What do you do, Catherine? And when I say picked on you, had a lovely conversation with. What do you do for a living, Catherine? You're a receptionist. Whereabouts do you recept? In Melbourne, Australia, you've come a long way for this. This is wow. And what what what's the business? The accountants, not like him. Fucking deal. He's got like deal. He's got a dildo shop. That's what he's got. He's got a bank. just massive dildos. That's what he's got. And only men are allowed to use them. That's the that's the worst thing about girls coming. Go, oh, I'd like. Them. No, you can't have that. Uh, that. That's a proper job. And what do you, are you from Australia also? No. How did you two get together? It's a crazy. You just met, literally just sitting next to each other. Oh, you look like such good friends. Let us know how the relationship gets on. I have, I have got a video camera and I would love it. it would just, if you've really enjoyed the series, if you've really enjoyed it, because I don't really get paid anything for this, so if you've really enjoyed the series, that would be the best way to... <laughs> if you became friends! And, and then messed up. So, um... <laughs> Welcome, everyone. Oh, dear. I was, I, last week, I, was, uh, with, I got a bit overexcited. With, been, it was Harry Shearer, and then I talked to Susan Cabin, and I was a bit tired and overexcited by the end of the second one. So I apologise for all the things I said last week. And you know what? I'm going to apologise in advance for all the things I'm going to say during this. Let us crack on, I think. You have uh, warmed you up there, good and proper. Uh, no one could argue with that. Uh, so, um, oh, actually, before I do, I've got two. Um, to, to, uh, you know, I'm quite obsessed with the Dirty Britcom Confessions website. If you've been listening this 
series. Uh, there are two new ones that have come up about me, which, again, I think are from people trying to get read out uh, in the podcast. But let's read them out in the podcast uh, to make them uh, happy. Well, the, what, the new ones are, please can Richard Herring goose me already? Yes, but, you know, you have to, you have to tell me who you are, because if I just go around goosing people, I will get into all kinds of trouble, as many celebrities have found out. <laughs> Uh, but I'm, I'm happy to do that as a service. If anyone just ask, will, just will you go? Is it does it work being goosed if you have to ask for it, or is it something that has to happen unasked for? I don't know. It's not something I would do. Uh, and uh, someone else says I'm constantly distracted by thoughts of Richard Herring in that flower bathtub, which uh, is uh, not many fans of as it occurs to me. And uh, which thank goodness. Uh, so those are my two new sexual fantasies. Have you got any sexual fantasies about me, Murray? No? Not yet. Still time. <laughs> I'm a bit worried about you two sitting there. It's like there were, there were people sitting here. And they've either disappeared or they've decided to leave. So one way or the other, you two are, are going to be trouble. Look, let's crack on. Uh, we've got a fantastic uh, first guest. He is a man who is probably best. You'll know him best. Because uh, he was the manager of the 1980s indie band Man From Del Monte. That is why... You've all come out. Will you please welcome John Ronson, ladies and gentlemen. Come in, welcome. Sit down. Pull up a mic. There is more. There's, you, yeah, you can take it out of there, otherwise it's going to get weird. Hello. There is more beer, there's more beer for you there, should you require it. I do feel that, that you would have all have heard of the man from Del Monte had they landed less inept management. Yeah, it might be the manager's fault. <laughs> but you, were only, you weren't the manager for the whole time. No. You were, you were the temporary manager. I was the manager Madison for Thomas. three years. Oh, that's quite a long time. Yeah. You should, you should have made them a hit. I managed them into the ground. What happened? What happened with the man from Del Monte? Let's, you must talk about this all the time. So uh, we'll get this out of the way first. Uh, well, I was fired for having an affair with the singer's girlfriend. Oh, that was a mistake. Uh, yeah. And um, so it was, a, it was a rightful firing. Uh, also, at the same time, the, uh, you're allowed to do that if, if, she, if it was her choice as well. That's, well, uh, yeah. uh, also, it, uh, it coincided. Also, I was in the Frank Side Bottom O Blimey Big Band, yes. and it coincided with me being fired from that too, uh, for tax reasons. Um, Chris owed thirty thousand pound back tax, yeah. and he stood up in court, and the judge said, "This is a very serious matter." Um, have you considered a payment plan? And he said, would a pound a week suffice, Millard? <laughs> and the judge said, no, it would not. So, and was he wearing his head? He wasn't his... wearing the head. That, so time. that is uh, Frank Sidebottom, who I'm sure we'll get on to uh, later. I thought of a good joke, which would have been really funny if I'd said it just when you were talking about it. But um, <laughs> the man from Del Monte's girlfriend, she says yes as well. That's, it's still quite funny, even now. But I imagine if I'd said it, I thought about it one second too late. That's just because I'm a little bit too... T- I'm just off my game, just slightly. Usually that would be fine. I'd, I'd love to know, but does anybody in there... There's like 300 people here, so this yeah. is a... Presumably. A, a, does, does anyone remember the man from Del Monte? Yeah. Yes! Wow, two people. Do you remember any of their songs? No. Do you um, remember any of their songs? Yes! Yeah. Water in my eyes, drive, drive, drive. See, you're a good manager. You I remember two like, of their songs. Yeah. <laughs> we better than that. Yeah. So, what were you doing? What was that? How did you get into band management? What were you doing around in the, in the mid-80s before you became a journalist? Uh, basically, I was the social secretary. I was the ENT secretary at the Polytechnic of Central London. Um, and um, 
Uh, and in fact, my, my, uh, the, the guy who was doing the Ents at uh, UCL was Ricky Gervais. Yeah, yeah. and so uh, we were like, you know, we booked the bands, and I'd have to say Ents, they'd phone up, and I'd say Ents, because that's what my predecessor said, and I yeah. was like, I'd been shadowing him. And one time, the phone rang, and I said, I said, Ents, and the voice said, what? <laughs> and I said, Ents. And he said, oh, Jesus, I thought you said ants. Uh, uh, he said, uh, listen, Frank's, Frank's supposed to be playing in London tonight, but our keyboard players had a nervous breakdown and said, we're going to have to cancel unless you know any keyboard players. Um, so I said, um, I play keyboards. And he said, well, you're in. <laughs> um, I said, but I don't know any of your songs. And he said, wait a minute. I heard, and then he came back and he said, can you play C, F, and G? <laughs> uh, I said, yes. And he said, well, you're in. Um, turn up at the cricketers at 5 p.m. And Frank's real name's Chris. And they kind of put the phone down. Yeah. And so I went to the cricketers um, in the Oval. Yes. And, and I found out by then that Frank was Frank's side bottom, but he wore a big fake head. Yes. And I was wondering, you know, I saw these men playing with leads on the floor. And I thought, you know, what, which one of them is, is Frank? And, and they all turned and looked at me, and I thought, would there be some kind of facial clue? Or... <laughs> and then I saw this other figure in the shadows turn, and it was Frank, and he was wearing the big fake head, yeah. and these two eyes staring at me. And I thought, um, God, is it like dead of night, you know, when the ventriloquist dummy takes over the ventriloquist? Yeah. Uh, and I said, hi, Chris, I'm John. And I said, silence. And then I said, hello, Frank. <laughs> and, he, and he went, hello. Uh, and, so, and I got to join the band. I played that night. Yeah. Uh, they taught me the songs. Mike, the manager, said, can you teach John the songs? And Frank kind of turned away from me and took his head off like he was sort of shyly undressing. <laughs> and underneath he had a little nose peg on, like an orthopedic brace, and he just, <laughs> he kind of demurely took off, and then gave me like a sort of apologetic smile, as if to say, I'm sorry that you had to, you know, witness such weirdness, but it's <laughs> out of my control, and um, I taught me the songs, and they were all C, F, and G, and um, the odd A, but not the full range, yeah. not the full 16 notes, <laughs> well, however many there are, um, and, uh, none, of, none of the black notes. Yeah, no, God no. <laughs> Actually, that's not true, in Anarchy and Timperley we played the black notes. Okay. <laughs> oh, I am an antichrist, and that was black notes. Right. Yeah. And, um, As, you know, professional keyboardists call them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then... Um, um, and then they offered me the job full-time, right. so I immediately quit college and moved to Manchester. <laughs> Um, and that's how I ended up in the music business. And, um, it's insane. That, 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 so this is one phone call that you happened to pick up the yeah. phone to, and if that hadn't happened, none of all, none of this stuff, and then subsequently... The, the film that I've written, and, yeah, <laughs> none, none of it would have happened. But it was just an amazing adventure. Nothing makes a young man feel more alive and on an adventure than speeding down the M6 at 2am next to a man wearing a big fake head. <laughs> So did he wear? Because in the film, I've seen a, I've seen the trailer for the film, mm -hmm. um, which is called Frank, mm -hmm. and I, I don't know how. Uh, I, I feeling it's probably not uh, a faithful rendition of uh, Timperley. It's a, it's by a the very look. unfaithful. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. But how how much did he actually wear the head then? Uh, in real life, he he uh, he kept it on beyond the call of duty. Right. Um, 
but um, he didn't never take it off. Yeah. Our Frank in, in the film that I've co-written, which yeah. is about to come out, um, never takes it off. No. Never. So, uh, <laughs> uh, so he has to say, his, so as not to, to be too intimidating, he has to say his facial expressions out loud. Yes. <laughs> like <laughs> like uh, lips, my favourite one of these. I, had, I, I co-wrote it with Peter Strode and he always got annoyed when I made the dialogue too mannered. But, uh, but a couple of my mannered lines got through <laughs> and one of them was one of Frank's facial expressions. He announces his... Uh, Lips pursed together as if to say enough frivolity. <laughs> <laughs> so it's quite an interesting idea to take this experience and turn it into film. But obviously the real Frank Sidebottom, uh, Chris has died recently. And how did, is there an element where you feel like you're taking someone else's life? I presume it's a tribute rather than anything else. But you are also taking his artistic creation and doing something with it yourself which is quite an interesting yeah well i mean it was all agreed with him right you know probably two or three years before he died sure uh, and he didn't want it to be a biopic and and i didn't want it to be a biopic no. i think the worst thing in the world is a music business biopic um <laughs> in fact when i started writing it i started looking at music business biopics to see what to avoid yeah. and the best of the best two is the Karen Carpenter story right. there's always that moment when you know the thing that everybody knows about is kind of shoehorned laboriously into the plot so the Karen Carpenter story she's uh, she, they go Karen Karen we've got an amazing review in Billboard and she reads it and it's um, close to you is a wonderful first single by Richard Carpenter and his chubby sister Karen <laughs> and she goes Chubby. <laughs> and then um, the other one was uh, Summer Dreams, the story of the Beach Boys. Oh, yeah, I think I've seen this Have one. you seen that I one? I think so. Well, like, we were obsessed with a, with a biopic of the Beach bad. Boys. I'm thinking it was that one. Okay. Well, it's the moment when Dennis Wilson's at a party. Yeah. And this man with, like, a beard comes up to him. It's Charles Manson. And he says, uh, hey, he picked up one of my girls hitchhiking in Malibu the other day. I believe a race war's coming. It's going to be the end of the world as we know it. <laughs> 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 so, um, People should have listened to him. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I didn't want to write a biopic, and, no. and Chris didn't want Chris to be in the film. The, yeah. the only stipulation he ever gave us was he didn't want it to be a film about Chris. Yeah. Um, and I didn't want to write. I couldn't imagine myself writing a film, writing like a Frank Sidebottom film, like Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Yeah. So the obvious thing to do was to completely fictionalise it and make it a sort of fairy story about a sort of version of me meeting a version of him yeah. and, and fictionalise it. So in the end, we kind of added all these other outsider artists yeah. like, and sort of made our Frank a sort of mashup of Frank Sidebottom and Daniel Johnston, the bipolar singer-songwriter. And, and, and so it's a sort of weird mix of all of those people. Sure. And Mike Fassbender plays Frank... Michael Fassbender. But it could like, be anyone, really, couldn't it? You yeah. say it's him, but... <laughs> you know what? I, I, <laughs> I never went to the set, um, and so I, but I got the rushes every day. I was, yeah. I, was, I, was, I, was, I was fortunately in on the email list of the rushes, so I can vouch, because I watch them all kind of yeah. assiduously, that at the end of each take, he takes the head oh, off, and, dis- and it is Fassbender. I'm disappointed that he didn't method it and keep the head on all the time <laughs> he was filming as well. Yeah. That is very disappointing to me. That's what I would have done if you'd given me the part. Uh, <laughs> I, I would have done it. 
Uh, so you've actually, yeah, this is you again in another film because you've been, you've been fictionalised slightly somewhat um, in the A, uh, you were played by Ewan McGregor. Uh, in the, <laughs> in the, the Men Who Stare at Goats. Yes. Uh, so this is the, is it, are there more than that? Have you only had two films where you make an appearance? Again, it's quite no. a good looking actor. Really, I've already, yeah, I'm not saying you're not good looking, John. <laughs> yeah, no, it's only the two. Um, yeah, that was hard. Um, yeah, I don't know. If people, do people? Uh, no, should I explain? Do they know who you are. I don't know. I don't know if they do. No. Uh, let's explain. Maybe the Manister <laughs> Goats. We can we can talk about the Manisters. Yeah. The Manister Goats was. I just chanced on this story. I was in Hawaii, and I met a man called Glenn Wheaton, who was a soldier, special forces soldier, and he was part of a secret military unit called Project Jedi. When you say you chanced across the boat... <laughs> well, we didn't just meet him in a bar. I mean, we knew, you know, that he existed. And we said, didn't he just ring you up? You went, Ent! We went... <laughs> it's like a code word. Oh, we have to tell him everything. I think we found so, him because we were doing something on remote viewing. You know, right. remote viewing is like the, the US Army used to have a team of secret psychic spies in a condemned... Uh, it's, which sounds great, right? Black up secret psychic spy sounds like the best job in the world it's actually the worst fucking job in the world because a because they're black up they had no coffee budget so they had to like bring their own coffee into work and after like <laughs> 20 and no they couldn't get repairs done on their condemned clapboard building they basically had to stay in this fucking building bringing their own coffee into work trying to be psychic for yeah. 20 years it's like the worst <laughs> fucking job ever. But they wouldn't know where the best coffee was being made, though, so they could just go, here it is, let's right. drive there. Well, it would have worked. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, but it was through them I heard about Glenn Wheaton. Right. And he was part of the secret unit called Project Jedi. So I met him, and he, he said the Project Jedi was a series of levels. Yeah. And I said, what was level one? He said, level one was observation. You walk into a room, how many chairs are in the room? <laughs> the super soldier would just know. <laughs> so, it's the main threat against soldiers, a chair, yeah. so they do have to know. They... <laughs> so I said, what was, I said, what was level two? And he said, level two was, um, was intuition. You know, a fork in the road. Do you go left? Do you go right? You go right. <laughs> uh, it's true that these guys... That's not intuition, that's you just go right. That yeah. is just deciding... Yeah. You decide based on intuition is the answer yeah. to that. So I said, what was level three? And he said, level three was invisibility. <laughs> so, um... I said, that's, that's quite a leap. <laughs> I said, what, what, actual invisibility? And he said, at first... But after a while, we adapted it to trying to find a way of not being seen. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, oh, I camouflage. <laughs> and he went, no. And then level four was they had a master sergeant that could stop the heart of a goat yeah. just by wanting it to stop. And he, could do, and he could do it. I can't remember. Could he do it? Did it one time. It one... But his heart... Well, you know, on the law of averages, yeah. that's going to... Well, at one point... Just they... gonna... I could stare at goats yeah. for about six years and then one, <laughs> one day one fall. of them fall over dead. Yeah. Well, actually, they would, at one point, they had 30 goats in a room and they all stared at goat number 16. They had numbers on the goats and number 17 fell over. Yeah. Which I suppose is... Uh... <laughs> I suppose is collateral damage. Yeah. Um... 
It's difficult with the goats to remember which number they are, that's the thing. So 17 probably thought he was 16. I said to him, because apparently his heart got, the starer's heart got damaged in the process. So I said, what was the goat psychically fighting back? And he said, no, the goat didn't stand a chance. He said, it's, um, he said, it's what's known in paranormal circles as sympathetic injury. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of, you know, you're, you're very good at, I mean, I guess if there's a theme running through all of your work, uh, it is kind of madness, <laughs> I would I'd say, that everyone, you kind of concentrate on that and everyone you, well, not everyone, but a lot of people you interview have, have are insane, probably. Yeah. Or, or I, magic. Well, or actually, well, or... well, that was always sort of, I suppose, in my first few books, that was like the kind of elephant in the room, I suppose. And then yeah. in, in, my, in, in my last but one book, uh, it became what the book was about, which is a book called The Psychopath Test, yeah. which is about, um, you know, the actual... I suppose it's about the sort of tyranny of labelling and diagnoses and also the possibility that psychopaths rule the world. And so it became a book about... that. You know, that book's a book about madness. Yeah. I mean, I suppose that, that so that leads on from all the sort of Bilderberg group and uh, David Icke and stuff that it's not necessarily lizards yeah. uh, slash Jews. This is the story about, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, the David Icke believed that, you know, the global elite um, were blood drinking, child sacrificing, paedophile lizards. Uh, and Jewish rights group like, like, like the Anti-Defamation League were all convinced that when he said giant blood-drinking paedophile lizards, he was using code. <laughs> what he actually meant was Jews. Uh, to which David Icke said, no, I, actually, I'm really honestly, I mean lizards. Um, and they said, that's code too. <laughs> I love that because, you know, the, the, the crazier the extremists get, the yeah. crazier do our responses towards them. It was like a kind of cold war of paranoia. Yeah, but a lot of this stuff does, I mean, basically conspiracy theories and, it, and well, all of this thing, it comes from the, the idea that the world is ordered enough for people to, you know, to, to be able to control stuff, which yeah. is not, so it's almost like a, it's almost like make, one making the, yeah, the, a comforting idea that the world runs by clockwork and yeah. that evil things can only happen because someone's orchestrating it and there must be someone in control of everything. So it's replacing... Yeah, and it sort of fits into the sort of Miss Marple-ish, you know, ness that we'd like to have about ourselves. That, yeah. uh, you know, we like to sort of solve mysteries and... I mean, the thing that really... Well, one of the things that really bugs me about conspiracy theories, frankly, is that they don't... They don't like put in any of the legwork. They don't like get on planes. They just get it all from Alex Jones videos on YouTube, and then get a little furious if somebody like me comes along and actually done a bit of research and it refutes what they say. And and they and then you know I accidentally type my name into Google and see um, you know these kind of threads basically saying I'm part of the new world order yeah. because you know because I'm. Because they're so, you know, because their belief system has just become so kind of sacrosanct. Yeah, but to you them. would say that, wouldn't you? If you were, <laughs> if you were one of the lizards, he is one of the lizards. Uh, so, <laughs> do you think any of the conspiracy theories are true, though? Do you think there's a? Do you think because there must be, like, all of these things. One of them must be like, just by the law of averages, one must have come through and actually be. Well, the certain, I mean, I remember when I first started writing my book, Them, people, st people were talking about this mysterious, shadowy group called the Bilderberg Group, yeah. and nobody had ever heard of them. Um, it was like a, comp uh, and people thought they didn't exist, and I thought they didn't exist, but I kept hearing it, actually. I remember an Islamic militant called Omar Bakri Mohammed was telling me about the Bilderberg Group and how they secretly rule the world, 
Uh, and then I went to, to Arkansas and I met a politically correct faction of the Ku Klux Klan. Um, <laughs> who's, uh, their leader, Tom Robb, had, um, he was trying to kind of give him an image makeover. So he banned <laughs> the robes right. and the hoods and the N-word and the cross burnings. He kind of banned all the things that, you know, my guess. On the fun bits. The fun bits, yeah. Bits. It was That's... funny, actually, because he had a... Um, they, he allowed one cross burning a year. And <laughs> on, like, the special clan day, whatever that day was. Uh, um, <laughs> July the 4th or something. And, and, uh, and they were all so rusty that they couldn't remember. They were all standing around this giant cross saying, do we soak it in kerosene and then raise it? Or do we raise it and, and then soak it? And, and, it kind of, and then Tom came over and said, Tom, do we soak it and then raise it? And he said, you soak it and then raise it. How are you going to soak it after you've raised it? So then he kind of looked at me as if to say, I am sorry that my clansmen are such idiots. <laughs> um, he liked... Me more than his clansman, I could tell. <laughs> he was very nebbishy, this guy. It was weird to find yourself turning down your Jewish character traits <laughs> so as not to alienate a Ku Klux Klan leader who's basically exactly like Woody Allen. Um, he put on these, um, he put on these like personality skills workshops in a marquee in his compound. Um, well, the clansmen had to fill in those multiple choice questionnaires, like which strengths or weaknesses most apply to you. And I always remember one of them was um, mixes easily, which uh, to non-clansmen would be a strength, but a weakness for clansmen, right? Because of the blood yeah. separation thing. Anyway, they also told me about the, the existence of the Bilderberg Group. Right. So, so, uh, so I began to think, well, maybe it is true. So, so I, I tracked them down with the help of a... Bilderberg expert called Big Jim Tucker. Right. He said that he said they do exist, and they're meeting at the, C the Caesar Park Hotel and Golfing Resort, Sintra, Portugal, at the end of May, and that's where they're going to rule the world from. And I'm going to climb up the drain pipes, get in, and confront them red-handed, going about their covert wickedness. <laughs> uh, so I said, "Can can I come?" <laughs> and, uh, and sure enough, we were chased by by the by the Bilderberg group. Yeah, they would have, they would have guards. As that was the first thing. Like, they would have, like, in, you know, stormtroopers, wouldn't they? They had Everybody. guards. Yeah, yeah. They, they followed. A car chase ensued when we really? left the hotel. Well, I say a car chase. I was going 29 miles an hour, so <laughs> he was too. But if I'd sped up, he would have fucking sped up. <laughs> and I phoned, I phoned the British Embassy. And I, was, I panicked so fucking badly, I can't tell you. I, I, I phoned up my wife and I said, I'm being chased by the Bilderberg Group's henchman but I said, and, I, 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 and it's just I'm way out of you know it's, it's not working out and I'm so sorry I'm so sorry and I don't think I'm ever going to see you again and, sh and she said um, oh you're loving it <laughs> um, she was right how did you escape well I uh, found the British embassy and I said um, I'm being chased by the Bilderberg group and she went <gasps> and then she went go on um, <laughs> And I said, um, I, I, I just heard you take a sharp breath. And she said, well, what are you, what are you doing here? She said, and I had my hand to God, she said, Bilderberg is much bigger than we are. We're just a little embassy. <laughs> she said, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I'm, I'm essentially a humorous journalist out of my depth. 
Um, I said, what I didn't put in the book, uh, what I didn't put in the book was, uh, was too painful. I said, uh, I'm, I'm, a bit like, uh, I'm a bit like Louis Theroux. And she said, oh, oh. Um, and I said, but he was, he actually has quite often cited me as an inspiration. Right. And she said, oh. And she's, and she's, and she's probably thinking, this guy's about to be killed by the builder, and this is how he's choosing to spend his last moments on earth. It's how important, I, important to get it sorted out. Yeah. And then we got back to the hotel, and the British Embassy called me back, and they said that they'd spoken to the Bilderberg office at the Caesar Park, and they said that nobody was following us, and they couldn't call off somebody who didn't exist. So I said, he's behind the tree. <laughs> it was, I was sitting by the pool. He was standing behind the tree, looking at me. And she said, oh, my God, I remember this. She said, the good news... <laughs> She said, as if you know you're being followed, they won't be the dangerous ones. The dangerous ones are the ones who you don't know are following you. And I thought, I thought two things once about this. I thought, A, how does the press officer for the Portuguese embassy know this? <laughs> and secondly, what if these people were the dangerous ones and I just happen to be naturally good at spotting them. <laughs> but also, it must be embarrassing to be one of the second-tier Bilderberg henchmen when, uh, with, the, with the reputation that you aren't very good at what you're doing. It's like, they must know, go, well, we never get to go out with the other guys, the invisible guys. We're always following the lesser people. We must be the ones who are shit at this. Well, he was shit. <laughs> at, at one point, he stopped his car... I stopped my car. If he'd stopped his car, I would have got away. Yeah. I stopped my car, and so he stopped his car. And, I, and I, I walked over to him, and I had a press card, and I kind of tried to wave it, and he just was assiduously looking ahead. Like, he didn't <laughs> want to... You know, he was making a point of not wanting to know who yeah. I was. Yeah. This was, like, one of the worst days of my life, which subsequently became one of the best days of my life, because... It, because um, actually, I learned a really good lesson about journalism on that day, which was basically you can only really tell a story if you can feel what your interviewees are feeling. And yes. I was feeling insanely paranoid <laughs> and suddenly <laughs> believing in the evil power of the Bilderberg Group. And, I, uh, and as a result, the story was a million times better for yeah. us. And do you think they are just some businessmen who like to get together and play golf with each other, or are they doing... I mean, they're all, all the rich people in the world obviously have a vested interest in staying being the richest people in the world and presumably will occasionally bump people off who are getting in their way. I mean, I think it's, it's probably a, a bit of both. I mean, yeah. I think they, they do... They don't meet for no reason. I mean, you know, they, they meet and they go to a lot of effort to meet. What they said... Eventually, I got to talk to a few of them. Uh, Martin, the, the secretary-general of the Bilderberg Group around that time was a guy called Martin Taylor, who was the head of Barclays. Right. And I think he was the head of WH Smith. You can't well. be called Martin Taylor and be an evil... Be, yeah, yeah, be Martin. like Blofeld. <laughs> Although, as I say, although, as I say, the psychopath test—if you really want to like get away with wielding true malevolent evil, yeah. be boring. Because journalists, <laughs> you know, we don't like writing about boring people. So actually, maybe he was. Yeah. Um, and, and what they would say was that they were globalists, early globalists. Um, so you know, they'd just gone through the Second World War. They didn't want a world 
um, you know, with more Hitlers. They, they thought the worst thing in the world was ideological politicians. And what they wanted to do was kind of take ideology out of politics and who were the least ideological people Businessmen, so they wanted to kind of take power from from politics and put it into the hands of business. I mean, this is what they said to me was basically the reason for the existence yeah. of the Bilderberg Group. So, so the idea was to then put together business and politics, and and you know, hopefully the the powerful business people would offer the rising politicians wise words. Yeah, yeah. Although what happens, you're giving power to people who just want to try and accrue as much stuff for themselves as possible, which oh, I think is exactly. the, the worst people to put in charge. Yeah, we'll have everything, yeah. and you can have hardly anything. It's funny that I did that story. It's quite an old story, that when I did that story, like, in the, I don't know, about 1997. And back then, it did feel quite like, you're right, business is more rational and less, you know, hysterical than, than politics. Yeah. But then, you know... History proved business to be just a shit at leading the world as politics. I seem to remember when, from them, going back to that though, that you you wrote that that was came out before nine eleven. Yeah, but there was quite there was a sort of warning within them about Islamic extremism. I remember because I remember when it happened. I went, it's just like John Ronson said. Although it, I think it was. 9-11 was probably more than you were imagining was going to happen. It but... was a bit more. Yeah, but, um, but, uh... but yeah, I was, you know, I was spending time... I mean, Omar Bakri back then was calling himself Osama bin Laden's man in Great Britain, which right. I noticed he stopped calling himself <laughs> after 9-11. But yeah, it was, it was... I mean, it was weird. I mean, I was at the Finsbury Park Mosque. I was, I was with these people who would eventually, years later, go on to commit acts of terrorism. Yeah. I remember I was outed as a Jew at a at Omar's jihad training camp in Crawley. Um, he, said, um, he said, he said, look at me with the infidel John, who is a Jew. And everyone went, <gasps> and I said, um, surely it's better to be a Jew than an atheist. And I heard someone go, no, it isn't. <laughs> Why can't everyone just get on? That's what. I should have swallowed before I gesticulated. <laughs> Swallow and then gesticulate. Um, actually, um, what happened afterwards was that they all surrounded me, like all these young jihad trainees. They all surrounded me and were basically treating me like like a rare fish you would find at the bottom of a coral reef. And they were like, one of them said to me, I've never met a Jew before. He kind of, what's it like? And um, <laughs> I said, it's all right. And, and I kind of left the jihad training camp, <laughs> feeling quite strongly that I had, it was like hands across the ocean. That's, yeah. Yeah. It's like uh, the, like the Christmas Day armistice. That's why if you get together, you go, oh, we're just the same. Yeah. So you're not allowed to be, you have to keep everyone separate so they can carry on the hatred. That's, that's the important thing. Yes. <laughs> the needless hate. Aren't we more or less exactly the same? No, we're very, very different. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Uh, we'll, we'll move on to... At the end of the Manny Stare of Goats, though, to get back to that, doesn't he... Well, this is a spoiler from my... Doesn't you... Don't you walk through a wall at the end of... Does, yeah. That didn't happen in the book, I don't know. No, and, it didn't, and actually it didn't happen in the screenplay either. Oh, really? The way The Men's Stare Goat starts um, the book and, and the film is, is a general, and this is a true story, a general is sitting behind his desk, General Stubblebine III, Albert Stubblebine III, head of army intelligence with, like, 16,000 soldiers under his command. I mean, the head of US military intelligence um, gets up from behind his desk and starts like walking really fast and then breaks into a run um, and smashes into the wall because he thinks that, um, <laughs> you know, with the right mental preparation, you can pass through your wall. Yeah. Um, because the atom, I remember him telling me, it's because the atom is made up mostly of space. That is true. Yeah. Although I do think that the key word to this is mostly. <laughs> <right>? um, <laughs> and. Um, yeah, and it's true, in the movie, Peter Strawn, who I co-wrote Frank with, wrote the screenplay for The Men's Day Goats. And, yeah. and, and actually, the screenplay ended with my character, Ewan McGregor. Ewan McGregor. Yeah. Um, <laughs> running, which is something I didn't do in real life, <laughs> running towards a wall. And just as he's about to hit the wall, it cuts to black. Right. And... Boston's more than a feeling comes on. But then when we saw the film at the premiere, <laughs> he passes through the wall. <laughs> so Grant Hesloff, the director, decided to make John walk through, run, actually managed to make it through yeah. the wall. I'll tell you what he should have done. Uh-huh. He should have... Um... <laughs> it's not what you're going to think. I'll tell you that later. Gonna... <laughs> he should have had Ewan McGregor come out of the cinema screen in every showing of it. <laughs> should have run at the wall. And then Ewan McGregor bursts out and goes, oh, that'd be fucking brilliant. He should at least have done that at the premiere. Yeah. But it would have been pretty cool if he'd done it every single show. <laughs> and the actual Ewan McGregor had to just drive around <laughs> and time it very carefully. Yeah, Next time, try that. Yeah. And he should have put a Shrek in it as well. Are you happy now? Are you happy? First, I think that's the first time. <laughs> first time of the series. Um, and, oh... What's, what about there's a, there's a, they had a gay bomb as well was this the same these are oh, the same guys yeah these are the same men so these are stories I, I, I'd forgotten all about yeah. right. they, they were trying to they had they, as well as trying to walk through walls and kill goats just by staring at them 
they also had developed a range of um, non-lethal weapons or uh, and you know proposed or developed yeah and yeah one of them was the uh, well there was a race a race specific stink bomb right uh, there was a net gun yeah they did manage the net gun actually and years later i met um a real life superhero called phoenix jones in seattle <laughs> I, I went on patrol with phoenix jones the real life superhero and he used to have a net gun um and one time it went off by accident and encased him as he was chasing a criminal and um the police had to had to cut him cut him free and so uh so he left he started leaving the uh, net gun at home he also had grappling hooks um, but he, he phoenix but he left them at home because a they were very heavy and b he realized that actually you scale a building with grappling hooks and then what do you do just to come back down again it's like a completely pointless come down in the lift yeah an utterly pointless superhero <laughs> fighting device however i know this is a tangent and yes. forgive me for this no it's tangent. all right well, i'm very happy with okay tangent. um but when i was when i was patrolling with phoenix jones the real life superhero uh, so basically he goes out into the night and thwarts crime but he gets very frustrated when he doesn't manage to thwart any crime and i was patrolling with him and there was like no crime to thwart anywhere um at one point we heard somebody screaming a woman screaming and phoenix went yahtzee and so and um uh, <laughs> started running towards it and then some people screeched to a halt in a car and said it's the guy from youtube and he kind of stopped and i think we have your photograph and he said okay and then by the time like you know the screaming woman had just vanished anyway after after like a couple of days of this he was like very frustrated uh, and he and he kind of pulled out basically you know the ace the ace up his sleeve and he said we'll go we'll, we'll go to belltown so i thought okay and um so we went to belltown and it's like three o'clock in the morning and we turned the corner and it was like the wire it was like were, it was fucking terrifying there was like 30 crack dealers a couple of days earlier we'd broken up a gang of crack addicts at a bus stop uh, by just walking past them and uh, they all kind of dispersed all nervously um, actually they saw phoenix the crack addicts at the bus stop they saw phoenix and his other superhero cohorts all whispering to each other and they were like looking suspiciously and what phoenix and the other superheroes were actually whispering to each other was i love the color design of your gold and black mask <laughs> he said the, the gold really pops um so when we turned the car you know he said we'll break up some crack dealers and i thought well it would just be like when well, we broke up the crack addicts but actually it turns out breaking up crack dealers yeah. and breaking up crack addicts yeah. very different the things crack, the crack addicts are on crack they're quite easy to take out i'm guessing the crack addicts <laughs> are vulnerable yeah the crack dealers not vulnerable so they said what the fuck are you doing coming here in your superhero costumes um this may be fun in games to you but it isn't fun in games to us uh if you don't get off our block we're going to show you this way so we're going to show you what the burner do and i thought from watching the wire that a burner was a stolen mobile phone yeah but that didn't seem contextually <laughs> um i was like 
I was nodding, I was kind of nodding obviously in agreement with everything the crack dealers were saying in, in the hope that if the shooting started, they'd like considerately shoot around me. Yeah, because he, he agreed with us, don't shoot him, he was nodding. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he likes... Uh, also, the superheroes all had like bulletproof vests and I had a cardigan. Um, so, um, anyway, one of them said... <laughs> One of them said, if you... Yeah, they walked away, and then they all came back, and they had their hands down like their sweatpants, mm. as if they had guns under yeah, there. Yeah. yeah. And then they came up to us, and they said... And I really thought I was going to... I thought this was it. This was worse than the Bilderberg group. And um, <laughs> Phoenix said, do we stand or do we leave? And the other superhero say, said, we stand. <laughs> um, and then they said, we ought to kill you right now, but if you're stupid enough to stand here, if we don't kill you, we're just going to have to go home. And they did, they all dispersed and went wow. home. Phoenix won. I know. <laughs> gonna, Are you on? Was that an awe of being on this on the crack dealer side? Yeah. <laughs> um, which I, I don't know. I've got mixed feelings about it, frankly. And they decided um, we're never going to deal crack again. We've realised how wrong it was. Because <laughs> Phoenix said to me, "I'm just we're just going to stand here for an hour to consolidate the block." Do you want to stand with us? And I said, no, I do not. <laughs> I'm very annoyed. I'm very annoyed that you put me in this situation. And when you're breaking up the crack addicts, I've just got a view. It's like in those old sitcoms where there's a drunk on a wall with a drink in some, a bottle of whiskey and then something unusual happens and he looks at the whiskey and throws it away. Is that how you dealt with the crack addicts? Who looked at their crack pipes and look at those super... That's, all, that's enough crack for me. <laughs> I'm yeah. moving on but, from crap. Yeah, but no, no, that was a long digression. But basically, yeah, yeah. the Minister of Goats people were also trying to develop the gay bomb, um, which was basically a bomb that you'd drop and it would release pheromones that would turn the enemy gay. <laughs> um, they'd be so confused that the Americans could go in and win. I think it'd be more dangerous for the Americans to go in... <laughs> They're all the, everyone's saying, who are these attractive men who've just arrived with their big guns? Uh, could work, it could, <laughs> it could... Just making you gay doesn't mean... I mean, sort of, they might all just start getting off with each other and then not be what, what, what worried about. It doesn't mean well, you're going to have sex with each other. Well, my guess is that it's the suddenness of the gay thoughts <laughs> would, would, you know, would, would make them take their mind off warfare. Yeah. I would think that some kind of bomb had been dropped on me to make me gay. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I would imagine. Uh, and, I mean, you've talked so many... Uh, I'm not even going to get to any emergency questions, but it seems a shame to... Oh. Uh, see. I'll take the emergency question. OK, I'm going to... Here's, here's a new emergency question from last week, invented, really, by um, Susan Kalman. Uh, if you were dying, which celebrity would you like to stroke your hair as you were dying? <laughs> I went for Goldie the dog, for some reason, from Blue Peter. I don't know where that came from. Uh, Maybe it was the word stroke that just made me think of stroking a dog. No. <laughs> not a sick joke. It's not like Goldie from Blue Peter had a stroke. That isn't, well, that isn't the joke. Yeah, do you know how Goldie from Blue Peter died? She had a stroke, that dog, apparently. Yeah. No. So who's the most calming celebrity? Well, Izzy Sooty. Izzy Sooty. Yeah. 
She would be good. That's who I want to die alongside. Okay, that's good. She is, uh, see, uh, interestingly, she has uh, seen her own, she's been contacted by a ghost of herself. So really? she's, yeah, she used to do Ouija boards and then her from the future got in contact with her. I can't remember what she said. And she's tried to talk to the moon. Well, the moon spoke to her. I wouldn't want her around when I was dying. Fuck her. <laughs> <laughs> she's a nut job. Good. Uh, and uh, would you rather have a tit that dispensed talcum powder or a finger that could travel through time? But the finger can only, you can change, you can go finger. anywhere you want with the finger, but you can't, only your finger can go through. I can't see any worth for the, well, you know, the talcum powder. Unlimited talcum powder. <laughs> Always at hand. I don't it would impress people. And you could give it to other people who do. Nobody uses talcum powder. Babies, babies do on their bottoms. Old I ladies do sometimes. Mimes. Athletes. Mimes use it, yeah. Yeah, yeah they do. Uh, yeah, the finger. You could, if you were doing gymnastics, you could do, use that to put on your... Did you ever do gymnastics? <laughs> Sunlightly. Where, where would your top finger go if it could travel through time? What would you Absolutely. do? I have no idea. No idea? No idea. My, my friend... Um, I think you'd be ready for that. Yeah. My friend, the podcaster, John Hodgman, has got a good um, question that, yeah. he, that he asks in this situation. All right, I'll, I'll see Which is... Um, and there is... A right and wrong answer to okay. this. Would you rather have the power of invisibility yeah. or the power of flight? Mm. Invisibility. Right, well, that means that you're a fearful, crouching pervert. Yes, I am. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I am. Whereas, <laughs> if you choose flight, you just soar. But if I was invisible, I'd just get on planes for nothing. <laughs> If you, if, if your penis could travel in time, what, who would you have sex with in history? But only ah. your, it's only your penis can go through, so you'd still be like, you'd be like having sex through a sheet or something. Yeah. Or a glory hole. It is. So it could go to anyone, and you'd have yeah. their permission as well. Yeah. Uh, I'm thinking the silent star Clara Bow. Oh, really? Yeah. Just because she doesn't say much. <laughs> There was a time, there was a time when <laughs> silent stars, you know, were sort of exotic yeah. and naked before they changed the rules. And they all looked so young and pretty, and now they're all dead. <laughs> <laughs> so it'd be nice. Well, I feel that, you know, I, so I feel so... When I even listened to, like, old radio shows... Yeah. And pe all the people are laughing. I think they're all dead. Yeah, I think all, those all people the time. laughing all dead. I can ha I can't watch old films anymore. No. Every time a dog walks in, I think that dog's dead. <laughs> it's awful. Yeah, but the dogs are always dead because yeah. they only make it to like fifteen. Yeah, they the are, dogs yeah. are always dead. <laughs> it's when even the people like one day people will be listening to this. Maybe not very many people. Uh, <laughs> In 50 or 60 years' time. And you'll all be laughing and they'll go, eh, all them dead. They're all dead. All dead. <laughs> the laughter of the dead. Yeah. That's interesting, yeah, good. So, silent, silent star. And you are a gonzo journalist. That is disgusting. <laughs> you're excited now, aren't you? Does anyone ever get confused about what you're going to be doing? So, no, not, other people don't know enough about pornography to get that, to get that joke. 
no. Okay. Just it's the same style. Of, it's the, you are a gonzo journalist in the same way that the gonzo pornographers work. It's a P, POV thing. Do you know? Oh, have you yeah, heard of gonzo yeah. pornography? No, I haven't. Have you but not? you're right. It's POV. It's POV. Well, yeah. So it's a, PI, it's a POV thing. So that's yeah. why that's why it's called gonzo because it comes it comes from the same thing as uh, gonzo. Yeah, gym. I get that. I, I mean, I did it because um, I just felt it was kind of ridiculous to not admit that you were in the room. It was like <laughs> it was crazy, you know. Because of course, you know, the first thing that happens when a journalist walks into a room is that everything changes. And if you don't admit that, then you're being dishonest. So, so that's why I started, mm-hmm. you know, putting myself in the stories. And do you ever get yourself confused with Louis Farouk? Because <laughs> even, even after I read all about you and remind... Because when I'm thinking back, I'm thinking, was that John or was that Louis who did that one? <laughs> I've noticed and, that. and even now I've read everything about you, I'm still kind of going, oh, I must be careful not to say the wrong... It was good when wrong you talked program. to Jimmy Saffle. Well, that's... <laughs> <laughs> there was a time, actually, many years ago, luckily about 15 years ago, yeah. when I was kind of, you know, very, feeling very competitive with Louis <laughs> Theroux. Yeah. And um, I used to think that, that we were like sort of conjoined twins, <laughs> in that for one of us to grow stronger, the other must die. <laughs> and, um, and, and all that passed, and, I, and it passed... If I'm being completely honest, it passed when my first book was published then because finally I had something, you know, that yeah. I could be proud of because my documentaries, you know, were... I thought my documentaries were kind of okay but not great. But, oh. then, but the books were really, really good. And, and so, so it, all that evaporated. And now we have, we have dinner. I saw him in... <laughs> I had dinner with him like two weeks ago. Right. And, and now it's all good. It's all Do good. You, are you trying to slyly interview each other and make yourselves admit <laughs> awful things, though, while you're doing... <laughs> <laughs> no, but I'll tell you what. It is weird. It is weird that when I... And neither one of us have ever copied the other one. We've no. never plagiarised each other. But we have always gone down the same roads together. So when I was writing them, he was doing programmes about, you know, white supremacists and, yeah. you know, extremists and so on. And then when I did um, The Psychopath Test, he was doing programmes about, um, uh, you know, over-medication in, mm. in America's children and, um, you know, the sort of tyranny of psychiatry and paedophiles being locked up for the rest of their lives and so on. Yeah. Uh, and now... Um, I, I, I can't really say what it is, cause, not because I don't mind talking about what I'm doing, but I don't know if I'd want to, he'd want sure, me sure. to. Um, we, we, again, once again, my, my next book is similar to some stuff that he's doing, so right. it's kind of weird that yeah. we're just on the same. <laughs> I, I think, yeah, it is, it's weird, you know, yeah. that we, we just are constantly going for the same things in, in, in the same order. Yeah. Yeah. But you didn't go in a... You haven't, you haven't done any porn film. You went, you went in a porn That was him, mm. wasn't it? Or have you been in a porn film as well? No, no, no. I, actually, I'm in a porn film. Are you? Yes. Um, it was something that I did for my next book, and it's not going to be in the next book, actually. I went to a... Um, I did. I went to an S&M <laughs> yeah, shoot. That's, that's um, good. That's what I'd do if I was in your position. Yeah. Going, oh, yeah, I'm doing that. I'm just going to be in a porn film for research. Oh, it wasn't good enough to be in the book. <laughs> Nothing really happened. I did. I, I, I went to an S&M shoot a couple of months ago right. in Los Angeles. A very, very hardcore S&M. Right. Um, I was trailing a dominatrix. Um, yeah. And um, 
Everyone was so nice to me. I can't, everyone was so nice. It was like, everyone was like rubbing my back and saying, you sure you're okay? And it was, I was thinking it's almost as if I'm the one whose genitals are about to be electrocuted. Um, but it wasn't my genitals. They were just trying to ease you into the Yeah. Just um, fancy putting your cock in this meat grinder. It was, um, it was a late night. I said to this guy, Shyla Kobe was the producer. He had these sad eyes, looked like Deputy Dog. I, I really liked him. And he said, it's all I know. So I've been doing this for, you know, my whole life. It's all I know. And I said to him, so what happened? What's going to happen? And he said, oh, you know. I mean, it was a bit different because it was hardcore S&M. And it had, like, you know, it had electrical pads and so on. And he said, well, basically, he said, whatever happens. He said, um, they fuck, they finish. I clean up, we go home. <laughs> it's true of us all, but it's, yeah. it's, it's just a, it's the truth of life. Um, yeah. So, well, but yeah, that's not going to be in the book. No, no. <laughs> How did your wife feel? Yeah, I was just doing the sadomasochist thing, and there was nothing happened. We can't really talk about it. Uh, so, um, let's talk about Robbie Williams and UFOs. That was good. That oh, was, yeah. So, that was a few years back. But yeah, that was, that was it. That's in the book I've written called Lost at Sea. Yes, yeah. uh, along with Phoenix Jones, the superhero. Um, yeah, and I got a call out of the blue from um, Catelyn Moran yeah. saying, Stay by your phone, Robbie Williams is going to call you. <laughs> and I thought, That's much too stressful. So I turned off my phone. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> I went for dinner, and I came back, and there was this long message from Robbie Williams uh, saying um, that he was over in England shooting a video. Uh, it was the video for it was the one when he dresses up as Elvis, and it's in Blackpool. It's in advertising. No, they, these people know about the man from Del Monte, but they no, don't know about Robbie Williams. Don't know about Robbie yeah. Williams. So he said, anyway, I'm in England, and I'm, uh, I want to spend a night in a haunted house, and can you set one up for me? So I called him back, and, and uh, yeah, I started emailing all these like ladies of the manor, saying, you know, dear, blah, blah, I, I've read on the internet that if the portrait in your drawing room is, is moved, a ghost uh, is disturbed and manifests itself. Uh, recently, I've been contacted by the pop star Robbie Williams. <laughs> uh, 100% of the people I emailed emailed back to say, yeah, our house is definitely haunted. And any time Robbie wants to come, they're like throwing their ghosts at Robbie, like they were their debutante daughters. Um, and then um, Robbie decided not to do it. He said, he said, so I can't do it. And I thought, I'd just spend a whole fucking week on this. And, and uh, I thought, you know, wonder Robbie Williams and ghosts get on so well. They both really manifest themselves and it suits them. Um, but in the end, we went UFO hunting. Oh, shit. In, in uh, Nevada. Uh, he said, I've hired a private plane for the day and I said is this really going to happen he said it's definitely going to happen so I flew to Los Angeles <laughs> and one of my favourite moments of the whole trip was he'd had his private plane which he was feeling a bit guilty about because it was like, I can't, it was like a lot of money and he felt bad that he spent that much money <laughs> but he wanted to make it nice so we drove up and we got to his private plane and there was a woman standing there and she said you know Mr Williams Mr Williams' friends uh, welcome this is your plane for the day uh, what I want to tell you, she said, <laughs> is that Snoop Dogg uses this plane a lot. What I'm saying is you can do anything. <laughs> um, we all kind of looked at each other like, <laughs> what? 
<laughs> and um, Robbie's friend Brandon said, uh, well, can we stand up as the plane lands? <laughs> Great. Did you see any UFOs? Uh, no, we met a couple of abductees. Right. Um, I met a woman whose son was an abductee. Jason was her son. And, and she told Robbie Williams that, that um, uh, he'd suffered much bullying uh, as a result. And right. Robbie said, uh, well, when did the bullying start? <laughs> and she said, well, it was when I brought up my book, uh, Jason, My Indigo Child, <laughs> Raising a Multidimensional Star Child in a Changing World. <laughs> <laughs> but Robbie was, was very sweet with her and, and very lovely and, yeah. and said that he felt like an abductee um, when he joined Take That. That was like... <laughs> and why was he is, he... is he is he a big believer in ghosts and UFOs? Or uh, is he just Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I think he wanted to... I tell him my card psychological theory, yeah. which is that... Um, you know, what does a young kid want? He wants to be like the most famous pop star in the world. He wants to play stadiums. And so everything that every kid wants happened to Robbie Williams. And he found it wanting. And so he wanted something else. He wanted something outside of himself. And yeah. what's better than that? It's space aliens. And he needed, I think he very desperately needed a break. In fact, I made this documentary about it. Um, called Robbie Williams and John Ronson Journey to the Other Side. <laughs> and a couple of people actually accused me of ex kind of ex not exploiting him because he was completely in on it, but, yeah. you know, but basically documenting this very vulnerable time for Robbie Williams. And I always saw it as the opposite. I always saw actually um, him doing this journey as that he was really fucked from touring and playing these stadiums all the time and he was totally fucked up and actually doing this ufo adventure was like his way of getting better right yeah i always saw it as, as him not you know being exploited for being vulnerable but actually the healing process yeah i mean that's interesting because i suppose you could level that at quite a lot of the, your your interviewees are, are, are vulnerable people and you're Except okay. I never am. I, I never, ever am. I mean, I, it would be... Because the implication of that is that I somehow consider myself like better than them. I never consider myself better than the people I'm interviewing. I think we are all... Like what I was saying about me and Louis from years back, you yeah. know, I was so fucked up about that, and it's so stupid, <laughs> you know? But yeah. in my bubble, it meant everything. I'm very aware that we're all fucked up, we're all, you know, we've all got our, our irrationalities that matter hugely to us and ri look ridiculous on the outside. Yeah. And so I do not in any way feel superior to anybody I ever write about. For me, it's like a kind of shared embracing of people's absurdities and flaws and not a kind of hierarchical. What I hate more than anything is, is hierarchical journalism and hierarchical Twitter and, yeah. you know, hierarchical legal system you know i hate you know and and so i i very strongly feel that what i'm doing is, is trying to kind of dismantle hierarchies by kind of giving dignity to the sort of people that other people would would sure. attack sure and yeah. I, I think that's true because you you are there's a sort of low status uh, to you in that i think you are quite neurotic and you are i mean the, that whole thing you've been chased by the building <laughs> bench when you come in this you're the last person you would expect to get yourself in that situation 
I mean, maybe I'm the last person because I'd be too scared to do it, to do all the things that you do. But it is, I suppose that's, that's why it works. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And, and also the fact that I'm not, I mean, I'm like the opposite of Donal McIntyre, you know, who would like, I remember one time he was doing something on the fashion industry yeah. and somebody gave him some cocaine and he had all these hidden cameras and the first thing he did was went into the toilet and like got the cocaine and just sort of, you know, put it into the toilet with this kind of disgusted look on his face, like he'd never seen cocaine before. Like I worked for the fucking BBC. And uh, um, for me, that sort of performance, that kind of hierarchical performance journalism yeah. is, is basically what I, I feel, I consciously feel, but I used to unconsciously feel is what I'm trying to kind of, in my own little way, to sort of dismantle. Sure. Yeah. And if anyone is going to be get an answer to this question, I guess it'll be you. Have you ever seen a Bigfoot? <laughs> uh, no. Actually, I did, I did some stuff. I wore the T-shirt and everything. Yeah, sorry. No. Never seen any mythical no. beasts. <laughs> well, yeah. it wouldn't be mythical if you'd seen it, so... <laughs> Maybe you've seen it and it's no longer mythical. Do you think the world might be run by Bigfoots? It's a secret cabal of Bigfoots. I don't believe so. Okay. I think nobody controls anything. Um, have you come on this show to kind of psychoanalyse me, because I'm a weirdo, is my other weird... Because you asked to come on this. Yeah. What and is... I kind of thought, is, it, is this another... Yeah. Oh, I've, there's a bloke in London who asked people if they've ever tried to suck their own cock. <laughs> Let's go and see, <laughs> write a book about him. Well, the reason I asked to come on it was because both you... There's, like, on Twitter, like, two things kept coming up time and time again, which <laughs> was uh, people saying, when are you going to be on Mark Maron? Right. And people saying, when are you going to be on Richard Herring? Uh. So I just thought I might as well tell you that I was going to be in London because I'm living good. in I'm living in New York at the moment. Look and, at you. and no, <laughs> living in New York, London is not good enough for you, isn't it? Basically, it's just like living in London, except I have far fewer friends. <laughs> um, and and that's why I said to you, I'm coming. Here. People have said. I mean, did you notice on Twitter people saying when you're going to have John Ransom? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I get yeah. people asking all the time for either one. You know, I, I only have people on that I like. Mm -hmm. but it's nice if they ask as well. Yeah. Yeah, that was good. It was very. We were actually standing at that bar, going, "Who should we? Who are we going to have on in the last show?" And then I got your direct message saying, "Do you want? Can I come on?" Yeah. So it was like. Uh, some kind of conspiracy and some kind of <laughs> ten, someone was but listening you in uh, but you, would have, you could have said no if you didn't want I know, to I, wouldn't, I, I, I would have said no I would yeah. have said no if I didn't want you on yeah. I, would, I was That'd very very fun. excited I thought more people would come uh, but uh, <laughs> I have no idea how many people are here <laughs> there are, there's there loads. seems to be there's an almost full room almost always look at those eight seats there the irony is someone's paid for those seats, right? Also, I don't know why people don't choose the front row. You get the extra leg room. It's like when I'm on a plane, yeah. right? I'm on a plane and I can <laughs> see that the exit seats are, like, free. And I'm thinking, fuck, as soon as, like, they say that everybody's on board, I'm going to, like, get out of my crappy seat and move into the exit seat. But everyone must be thinking the same thing. And I'm thinking, fuck, everyone must be thinking the same thing. And, I think, and then they say it, and then I kind of jump up my seat and run towards the exit seat, and I'm always the only one to do it. <laughs> and the reason why is because the other people on the plane are more well-balanced than I am. <laughs> and, um, but there's much more legroom in the front row. So well, you have to sit next to these guys, and they are properly weird. You could definitely well, I, do... There's definitely something in this. If you follow these two around, yeah. you're going to find all kinds of stuff going on with them. Yeah. Um, well, look, we've, we've nearly got to finish, but I'll try and think. We'll see what else um, we can slip in. Um, well, I don't know if there's anything, but you were granted access to the Stanley Kubrick ar archive exclusively. Uh, how, yeah. how did that happen? How do you get all these things happen to you? Robbie Williams rings you up and 
for men who stare at goats ringing up. So you, why, why were you chosen uh, to look at his archive and what was in there? Basically, I made a documentary years ago, a radio documentary, uh, called Hotel Auschwitz, about the marketing of Auschwitz. And, um, and I got this call from this posh voice after the documentary went out, saying, my employer would very much like a copy of your documentary. And I said, who's your employer? And he said, I, I'm afraid I can't tell you. <laughs> and I said, oh, go on. <laughs> anyway, Stanley Kubrick. And... Um, <laughs> That's why you're a brilliant journalist. <laughs> he was, a, he was an easy wall to break yeah. down, I've got to say. I'll remember that. I'll go on. Yeah. So, um, I'm going to use that in the next one. Next one. I later discovered why. It's because he was, he was planning a documentary about the Holocaust called right. Aryan Papers. Either called Aryan Papers or Wartime Lies. But he spent so long planning it that Spielberg made... Uh, Schindler's List yeah. and then so he, he dumped it but anyway I'd never heard anything again once I sent the tape in and then he died and then about a year after he died I got an invitation the, the posh voice phoned again the posh <laughs> man and he said do you want to come up for lunch uh, to the house and it was Stanley Kubrick's house this right. kind of giant house between St Albans and Harpenden yeah. and it was just filled with boxes just how it, was, it looked like the Inland Revenue had taken it over. And I said, what's in the boxes? And, and he said, Every, you know, everything. We never threw anything away. And I got home and said to my wife, you know, God, Stanley Cooper's house is just full of boxes. And she said, you should ask them if you can look through them. So I, so I did. And I spent years on and off going back and forward to Kubrick's house. So you, you went, you had the journalist integrity to go, oh, go on, but you did, when you were in the house, you know, can I look in those boxes? <laughs> yeah. That was your wife. Had to uh, say. Yeah. Why did you ask to look in the boxes? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I didn't think of that when I was there. <laughs> I tell you my favourite one. <laughs> yeah. My very, very favourite one was um, there was a porter cabin that was filled with photographs of, of London, like millions of doorways and, and um, uh, mortuaries and, um, oh, God, costume shops and like everything you can think of. Like Basically, all of London was in this porter cabin, practically. And all the photographs were taken by... Uh, Manuel Harlem, who was uh, Kubrick's nephew, and it was all location shots through eyes wide shut. Right. And so I interviewed Manuel after I looked at these photographs, and, and he said at one point uh, Kubrick wanted him to take to photograph the whole of Commercial Road in East London, right? But he didn't want he, had, he didn't want the buildings going back and forward, so like, so he had to take a ladder and he had to climb a ladder, take a photograph, right. come down move the ladder like six inches, climb up again, take another photograph until he got a panorama of that. It was like Google Street View before it was invented, uh, of the whole of Commercial Road. And it took him like months. And Kubrick was like phoning up all the time, going, hey, what are you done? Are you done? Come back, what are you going to do? And so he kind of like did it, like got to the whole of Commercial Road, both sides, long road, g finishes, goes to Snappy Snaps, get, gets them developed... And then assiduously, like, sellotapes them together. So you've got, like, a perfect panorama <laughs> of the whole of Commercial Road. And then he got back to the Kubrick house and, like, laid them down this really long corridor. And then Kubrick comes out of his quarters and, like, looks at them and goes, well, it sure beats going there. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. It's been, it's been fantastic talking to you. It's now 11.11. <laughs> no, it's not. Yeah. Whenever he looks at his watch, it's 11.11. 11. It's always 11.11, 11, and it will happen to you all now. 
Your watch is broken. Every time you look at your watch, it'll say 11 11. Your watch is broken. It's, not, it's, not, it's, quarter to, it's quarter to nine. Uh, <laughs> we didn't get on to We didn't talk about Jonathan King. Maybe another time. Uh, but, uh, ladies and gentlemen, give a big round of applause to my guest, John Ronson. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you very much. Cool. How do you like them sky potatoes? <laughs> Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Thanks for listening. RichardHerring.com slash gigs. GoFasterStripe.com for all my books, downloads, all that sort of shizzle. Oh, yeah, I know all the cool words. And um, would love to see you on the, on the Can I Have My Ball Back tour if you can make it. Bye. <laughs>